this is really a very forgiving audience, so don't. But that excellent job. Thank you for doing that. We really appreciate it. So, so we are ready to, uh, uh, to release the children to their programs, to the Super Church. So if you would like to uh, uh, meet Don down at the gym, you can go out these doors or the back doors, either way. And uh, Don is down there and the workers are there waiting for you. I don't know if I could have done that when I was 11, actually. So. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the day to gather together and to sing praises to you and to um, meet with each other and, and, and catch up and, and uh, just share what you have done for us in uh, the last week. And, Father, we're asking you that you... Um, Take this wonderful, this wonderful book of Mark and that you use it in all of our lives as we uh, in start this. And just pray that your spirit be here this morning, that he be the teacher as he moves inside of our building, inside of our room. We pray for the children at the gym, in the, down in the gym. We pray for the children in the nursery and in the Sprouts room. And just the teachers that are handling that, we're so grateful for them and how you have used them and how you continue to use them to shape these lives uh, into the image of Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are starting a new series this fall on the, the book, of, book of Mark. Um, I don't know, uh, there was, um, Peter Schaefer wrote a, wrote a play uh, years ago, and in uh, 1984 they made it into a movie called Amadeus. And many of you may have seen it, may remember the movie. Uh, it's, really, it's, it's really a great movie. It's now uh, categorized as classic cinema. That makes me feel really bad. Uh, when I think of classic cinema, I'm thinking Humphrey Bogart, Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn. Those, that, to me, that's classic cinema, but now this is classic cinema. Uh, it's a great story about Mozart, and if you've seen it before, if you, if you, you might remember it, that there's a kind of a cynical old... Um, court composer named Antonio Salieri, and he sort of tells the story uh, about, about Mozart and about the conflict he, have, he had with Mozart. He is a guy who wrote music, wrote operas, um, and he kind of just wrote, told and retold the stories of these legendary heroes, and, but he used sort of stale, tedious music to do it. And uh, that, was his, that was his frustration, and he has one of the best quotes in the whole movie, and he's talking about Mozart, and he says, ordinary people. He said, he has taken ordinary people and has made them gods and heroes. Where I have taken gods and heroes, and I have made them ordinary. And when I think about the book of Mark, that's kind of what I think of in the book of Mark, that he, he has taken ordinary people and has changed the world with them. He's taken these characters, one he just calls the carpenter, who was, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's the only one in the gospel who actually calls Jesus a carpenter. Matthew talks about uh, Jesus being the son of a carpenter, but Mark identifies him as a carpenter. And, uh, and so Sally, and, and uh, you take John the Baptist, who's the son of a priest, but never went that route, and he's kind of this weird guy uh, in, the, in the desert. 
And he's kind of taken these, these sort of what we think maybe in the time as ordinary people and has raised them up to people who have changed the world, who have changed history. And uh, Salieri complains that Mozart has taken barbers and chambermaids. Well, Mark even goes further than that. And when you read the story, he introduces us to ordinary people all through the story. But he even goes further than that. He also calls us ordinary people to join into the story and to make a difference. And that is what makes Mark different. He is, he, that is his whole point, is that he's addressing people who have ears to hear. And he says these are ordinary people and you are to follow this man, Jesus. And follow is an important theme throughout the whole book, following Jesus. It appears in almost every single chapter in the book of Mark. So Mark is telling us this story, but he's doing this extraordinary thing. He's inviting the hearers, the readers, us, to participate in the story, to be part of it. He is calling us, inviting us to be in the center of the story without becoming the center of the story. He is calling ordinary people to do that. He's calling the barbers and the chambermaids to follow this man, and it makes a total difference. The Bible is one uses narrative throughout the whole scriptures. And when the stories are, are when they call us to participate in the stories, these are things that are they're calling us to be part of a world that's different than us. He's calling us to be part of a world that's bigger than us. And if these stories are good and true, then it's something that's just beyond our imagination that we never could have imagined before at all. And Mark's story is good and it's true. And so when we invite ourselves to be in this, we're getting part of a story about a world that's larger, greater than anything we could have ever imagined. It is a good and true story. And when we enter these stories, we, we think accurately we, we sing more joyfully, we behave morally, we, we preach more passionately, we obey faithfully, we pray, pray honestly. And that's why it's so important to be part of this and keep, keep immersing ourselves into this story. When we start taking these things, that the Bible as a whole, and just start using them to make a systematic set of doctrines or some moral code, something like that, then we are taking us out of the presence of God. We're taking us out of the story, and we're basically setting up shop on our own. And that's the reason I believe it's so important that we continue to re-immerse ourselves in the stories of the gospel. I mean, the New Testament, the scriptures are inspired by God. Okay? They are inspired by God. And Paul's letters, John's letters, Peter's letters, all those things are inspired by God. But I don't think there's any substitute for immersing ourselves in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where we enter in and, and know in the presence of God that we are part of something. And we are just a continuation of Mark's story. We just keep going. We are the barbers and the chambermaids that keep the story going, that keep what God is doing. So God has called us, Mark is calling us, into the center of the story without becoming the center of the story. And I think that's very important to, re to, to remember. What I want to do this morning is kind of introduce the book 
and then look at the, the very introduction, those first eight verses that Kellen read, and, uh, and see where Mark is going with this to kind of set us up for where he's going to take us. Mark is telling us a different kind of story. I think the, the book of Mark is inspired by God, and that means the content is inspired by God, but I also believe that the style, the form, the literature is inspired by God. The way Mark tells it is inspired by God, and I think it's very, very important how Mark tells it. He says it's very different. And I mentioned in the Connections letter this last week that if I was a, a librarian in the, in the Library of Alexandria, for example, and somebody came to me with this parchment and said, hey, we got this new book here I want you to put in the library, I'd look at it, I'd read it, I'd say, well, I don't have a, I don't have a shelf for this. I'm going to have to make a new shelf for this because I've never seen anything like this. This is totally different than anything that's ever been written before. It sets a new literary genre, basically, is what I'm saying. And so it's very different. Who is this? First, the question is just who is Mark? Well, it doesn't tell us. The book doesn't tell us. But there is this unending tradition that goes all the way back to the first century, all the way back to the first, second century, that identifies it's almost unbroken, 100% unanimous, that John Mark wrote the book. Who is John Mark? Well, he is, uh, he's, he was in the, his mother is Mary, and he was in the house when Peter was miraculously re released from prison. You might remember that, when he actually got out, and he comes knocking on the door, and Tabitha opens the door. Who is it? Well, actually, she shuts the door. She's not sure who it is. That's, that's John Mark's house. And John Mark uh, joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He's Barnabas' cousin, and uh, so he went, and they went to the, to, the land, to the island of Cyprus. But when they got back to the mainland, Mark said, I've had enough, and he wants to go back home. So he goes back home. We don't know why, whether he was afraid, whether he wasn't ready for the pressure, he didn't like traveling, or he was homesick. We don't know why. But for whatever reason, he went back home. So when Paul and Barnabas wanted to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark with them again. And Paul says, no, he was too irresponsible last time. We're not bringing him. And so they split up. It was a, it was a pretty bitter fight between the two, and they split up. So Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took Mark. And this is one of the reasons why I love Barnabas. He took the guy that failed. He took the guy that blew it, that flaked out, for whatever reason, and he nurtured him, and he was with him, and he taught him. And what do you know? He writes a, he writes a gospel. He is with Peter in Rome when he writes. And so he's in Rome in the, between the 60s and 70s A.D. under the crisis of Nero. And this is, now why am I mentioning this? Because it's important as we go through the book, because the whole book is talking about a lot about persecution. And he's in, he's in Rome with Nero as the emperor. And most of us know that around 64 AD, there was this, ravaged, this fire that ravaged Rome all the way through it. And we had the idea that, that you know, you, the, the, the picture of, of Nero fiddling while Rome burned. Some people even thought that Nero planted or started the fire for political reasons. And so he had to find somebody to blame. And he blamed the Christians. They were antisocial. They, were, they thought they were corrupt morally. They ate flesh and blood, you know, that kind of thing. And there's all these rumors spreading around. About, and they called each other brothers and sisters. What's that all about? So they, they didn't have a great reputation a lot because they misunderstood what was going on. 
And Tacitus, who wrote a history, I'm just going to read a little bit of portion of what he wrote about this event of the fire. Tacitus, who's no friend of Christians, but he writes this. He says, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then a large numbers were condemned for their antisocial tendencies, and their deaths were made farcical, dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn to pieces by dogs, or they were crucified, or they were made torches to be ignited after dark as a substitute for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle. Now, I hear a lot that we live in this culture today that's hostile to Christians. No, that's hostile to Christians. That's suffering. That's suffering persecution. And why is that important? Because we see through this, through the whole book of Mark, he is talking about it. He's addressing this church in Rome that is there in Rome of believers and how they are to deal with persecution. And if anybody who knows how to toughen up, it's John Mark. The same guy that flaked out, he's now under there suffering under persecution. He knows what he's talking about. When he talks about suffering for Jesus, when he talks about following Jesus, he knows what that means, and he knows what that's cost. In the middle of his book, the very climax of the book, you can divide the book in, in two halves. It's like it leads up to the last week of Jesus. In the middle of the book, chapter 8, he says, he quotes Jesus as saying, if you want to follow me, you got to take up a cross and follow me. And if anybody knows how to do that, it's John Mark. That's who wrote the book. So who is Mark talking to? He is talking to this church. His target, his aim is the church. He is talking to this group of people in Rome under the, under the thumb of Nero. And he's talking to the readers. He's talking to us. He's talking to the people who have ears to hear. So this, Mark's, Mark's audience is the church. Mark's audience is, is who is listening in the, in, across history and despite whatever circumstances we're in. And what makes Mark's story different? Well, first, it kind of looks like a biography, sort of, kind of. But he doesn't tell us anything about the birth. It doesn't tell us anything about the, about the, the education, what Jesus is is uh, his emotional state, nothing like that that you would normally see in a biography. He just starts right off. So it's kind of a biography, but it isn't a biography. He's talking about something else. And what he's doing, he fits himself into this book, into this whole story of creation and salvation that God started from Genesis all the way through Exodus, through the prophets. And Mark sees his book as continuing on that story, that this is part of what God has been doing. And he insists on our participation in it. And that's what makes his book different. It's not just a book that we read as spectators, like they would read in the old times. They would read these stories about the, the gods and the legends and the heroes, but these people are spectators and they're just, they're just there for the entertainment. But Mark's book isn't that way. He's telling us these stories, but he's saying, and you've got to be involved in it. You've got to get yourself into the story. So what he's doing here is kind of, it's, it's not the spectator, nor is it just some moral philosophy like you'd see from Socrates or Plato. 
some philosophy that says you've got to depend on your own salvation. You've got to figure out how to live yourself and how to depend on your own self. So what Mark does, he kind of splits the difference. He's kind of he's saying that you're not a spectator, you're a participant. And you're not doing it on your own, you're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the story Mark is talking about. We Westerners, we like explanation, we want information, and, and then we kind of make up our mind and go on about our way and do our thing because this is the information we have. We fill our heads with that. This is what you're supposed to believe. This is what you're supposed to do. But Mark says, here's a story. Get in it. And it protects us from just being a spectator, and it protects us from trying to do it on our own. We are invited into the center of this story, but we're not the center of the story. A different form of literature. And in a few words, he makes, it, it makes a big difference. He has, it's a very short book. It's the shortest of the gospel. And he just uses a few words, but every word is important. Every word carries a meaning with it. It's full of images. It's full of meaning. And he uses the word immediately over and over and over again. He really likes that. He's moving fast. He's like, let's go. Let's get on with this. And so what he does, instead of explaining all these things, he just uses key words to communicate what he wants to communicate. He said, let's go. My favorite gospel has always been Luke since a long time. I just love the way he writes. I love the stories. I love how everything fits together. I love how he repeats and how he mirrors. And, and he's just, I think he's a brilliant writer. Sue's favorite gospel has always been Mark. And we were talking about that this week. And she says, she goes, you know, all my, I was thinking about it. She goes, all my best friends that I've had, you know, since I was younger, he says they were always friends who said, come on, let's go. Let's go do this. Because she likes to analyze things. She likes to understand before she makes the decision. She's kind of held back. But then her best friend, Carol, was both of our friends. Carol was like, let's go do this. Let's go and get her out of the shell. And she goes, that's what I feel about Mark. Mark's like my best friend. He says, let's get on with it. Quit, quit, quit analyzing everything. Let's just go and do it. And that's kind of how Mark writes. Immediately, 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 they did this, this, and this. And it's just a wonder, and I'm, I'm beginning to fall in love with Mark myself. I just think he's just so brilliant, just the, the few words he uses and how much he communicates in the four words. So we're going to look at just these first eight verses as the introduction of the book. <clears throat> but each, like I said, it is so packed that we will do this in 10 or 15 minutes. But I encourage you to kind of look at this a little bit carefully. I think in this thing he makes four outrageous claims. And challenges the powers that be in just these eight verses. <clears throat> First of all, Mark challenges the myths of the empire. He starts off saying, in the beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. My NIV reads, the gospel, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But really, all it says is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And why is this threatening? Because he takes aim at Caesar himself. This word gospel, and I've mentioned this before, this word gospel is not a Christian word. It's a Roman word. That when there was a new leader, a new Caesar, a new king coming on the throne, well, he sent out messengers through all the towns with the good news, 
with the good tidings. Hey, there's a new, there's a new ruler in town. Things are going better. The justice is going to happen. There will be peace. Peace in the empire because there's a new ruler. There is a gospel. And that was the gospel. That was the good tidings. And Mark is saying, this is the good tidings about Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ. This is a different good tidings. This is a different king. There is somebody else that's going to ascend on the throne. And yes, there is conflict, confrontation with the powers confrontation with the empire, confrontation with the Rome, but this, is, this, leader, this leader takes control, takes power, not through, there is a battle, but not through the victories of the Roman army, but with another power completely different. Another power of the Holy Spirit. And this will be totally different than what you've seen before. So he's saying this, this, this imperial system this propaganda, these myths that you claim, they're nothing. There is a new king here. And yes, there will be battles, but it's not with the armies of Rome. And he says this is the beginning of the good news. This is the beginning about Jesus. It is the, good, it is the message that Jesus himself proclaims. And the message is Jesus himself. And Mark says this is the beginning. The beginning. And I'm wondering if Mark is referring back to Genesis just like John does. When John says, in the beginning. That this is something new. This is about a new heaven. This is about a new earth. Mark challenges the cynicism of the religious experts. The next verse he says, he talks about these, these he quotes these prophets. It's like the, before Mark opens the curtain to the story, there's this voice off stage reading these prophets. And he says the prophet Isaiah, but really he's, he's kind of conflating several verses here. One's from Exodus, one from Malachi, and then the second line is from Isaiah. And so the first one, it says, it is written, written as Isaiah the prophet. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you, and he will construct a way. He will construct your way. In other words, this is something new that he's going to do. And this quote comes from Exodus, and it comes from Malachi, kind of a, 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 the, the, both of them. And in Exodus, he said it's a way to the promised land. It's a way to liberation. It's a way to peace. And in Malachi, it's a way for God to come and dwell with his people. And it's new because he's going to construct. Literally, it says that he will construct a way for this. And then he goes to Isaiah, and he says, You will prepare, will prepare a way, a voice calling in the desert, which is a referral to John the Baptist. And what I think Mark is doing here, when he quotes these, this Old Testament, it's been accepted by the scribes and the rabbis of the day that God's inspiration, God's voice stopped at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That God has been silent now for 300 years, or a little over 300 years, and he's not talking anymore. And the rabbis and scribes have decided it's done. The book we have is done. It is the scripture. God is no longer empowering the prophets to speak. And Mark is coming along and saying, no, guess what? I'm picking up where Malachi left off. Malachi left. Stop. Yes. But God is not mute. God is not silent. In fact, he has made himself known in this person, Jesus of Nazareth. He is not quiet. 
And I happen to believe that God still speaks today, and I think that's part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think we, we instead of making the claim that, that God is no longer talking to us, I believe personally that this is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he continues to speak in this new age, in this new under the gospel. And I think that's what he's saying. He's saying that, that yeah, you think Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi was it? And Mark is saying, no, it's not. It's not it. He is still continuing to speak. The story goes on. Yahweh has spoken again. And he has spoken with this dramatic appearance of this man, Jesus the Messiah. And this is how he speaks. And Mark challenges the oppression of the religious system. One of those other words that's compact with, with meaning here is the word wilderness. It appears nine times in just the first half of the book. It's very important. Wilderness is uninhabited. And the reason I believe it's in opposition to the religious system is that people were coming to the wilderness for repentance, for forgiveness of sins. But where are you supposed to go in this time? You were supposed to go to the temple. And so I think Mark is saying the temple is this. It is, it is corrupt. It is oppressive. And Mark is saying, yes, Malachi says God will come and dwell in the temple. But Jesus redefines the temple. The temple is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the temple. Heaven and earth meet in me. And I think that's what Mark is getting at here, that now they were going to the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? Well, that's where people went to go and got baptized and got forgiven, to get ready for the, the, the message of Jesus Christ. But it's also where people are hungry. Twice, there's a crowd in the wilderness, and Jesus feeds them. It's the, it's the place where people get tested, Israel was tested in the, in the wilderness. Jesus was tested in the wilderness. It's the place where they wait to get rescued. It's the place that on the way to getting delivered, it becomes a very important symbol for Mark. The wilderness is where it all starts. With the person of Jesus Christ, where heaven and earth meet in him. And finally, Mark challenges the hopelessness of the people. He challenges the hopelessness of the people. John comes on the scene, and he raises the expectations. He raises the expectations of what God is doing. Now, the other day, I was down, I was going to meet Sue at this bookstore. We were buying a, a gift for a friend, and, and I was stopped by the ATM machine, and uh, there was a couple there, I was going to say an older couple, but they're probably my age, but they were, <laughs> I really was going to say an older couple, and I thought, yeah, they're probably my age, and uh, she was carrying a little dog, and he says, uh, he says, uh, nice outfit. Now, I'm not used to people commenting on my attire, right? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm there going, okay, uh, thank you very much, especially a guy. I'm not, <laughs> you know, used to a guy counting on my, on my, it was jeans, and it turns out he was wearing the exact same thing, jeans and a maroon t-shirt, a maroon shirt. It took me a minute to realize that, you know. I was like, okay, okay. I'm just not used to it. Well, Mark makes a point to mention that, 
that uh, how John was dressed. And he makes a point to mention what he eats, locusts and honey. Now, why would we be interested in John's diet and John's attire? Well, when people hear that and Mark's telling the story, they're going to think Elijah. Let me give you an example. Here's a guy with a beard and a ridiculously tall hat. And he's just some guy in a suit. But who do you think of? Abraham Lincoln. We all know that. Now, if I were to show that picture to somebody in Mongolia, they'd go, I don't know. Who is that? But for Americans in our culture, we see that and we think we know Abraham Lincoln. Well, when they looked at John the Baptist, how he was dressed, what he was eating, they think Elijah. And what does Elijah do? Elijah comes and brings news of protection, of deliverance for the people, salvation for the people, and that's what John is doing. He is coming to bring and communicate the saving act of God, the protection. And Malachi says, I will send Elijah on the temp- to the temple where God will dwell. In this case, he has sent John to announce the temple, the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, this person that's coming after me, he raises everybody's expectation. Is this it? Is this it? Is this what God's doing? Is this what Malachi was talking about? And John raises the expectation. He says, yeah, the guy that's coming after me, he will have more power than you could ever dream. He will, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. He is so powerful. I baptize you with water, but this man's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of God. And so the expectations arise. But you know what else happened with Elijah? John also escalates the tension. This is obviously going to cause problems in the time, in the culture. You remember Elijah and Elisha and all of the followers, all the other sons of the prophets, they set out to, to rebel against the house of Ahab. And this is what happens to John too. The tensions rise. The conflict rises. And Mark tells us, he even mentions in this section about him being arrested. And then later on, he describes what happened, how Herod has him beheaded. So he is like Elijah, causing tension. These days, um, I hear a lot of people telling us that well, you need to find your story. You need to write your story. You need to define your, you know, t- tell your story. Oprah Winfrey says this, you know, what's your story? You need to hear your story. And even the Christian, even Donald Miller, uh, who wrote Blue Like Jazz, who I absolutely love, uh, he, he started a company to help individuals and businesses uh, define their story and, and tell us where they're going to be. And, and they're the center of the story. And I get that. I understand that. I think it's important. But every story needs a celebrity, and we end up being the celebrity in our stories. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing your story. There's nothing wrong with telling your story. I used to have the students write their story, first get their chapter titles about their life so that they can know 
But I, what I wanted them to do is not say, I'm the celebrity of my own story. I wanted them to see their story through the eyes of God. I wanted them to see the story from a God's eye view and what he was doing. That's why it's important. Uh, Augustine started this with his book of confessions. So I, we had to read that in seminary, and I barely remember it. Okay, it, it's, You're reading through it. I mean, the guy is just going through, it, in, analyzing himself from head to toe. And I, it got really tiresome, I have to tell you. Okay, this guy's going through it. But he ends it talking about Genesis and eternity and time. And I thought, who's this guy's editor? This doesn't have anything to do with what he was talking about. Then I realized, oh yeah, it has everything to do with what he was saying. That Augustine wasn't talking about all the mountains he climbed or all the great works he did uh, or the addictions he overcame or the great work he did for the poor. He was just, it was, the title tells it all, Confessions. And he was seeing his story in God's story. And when we look at our story, our story is not incidental. It's not on the periphery. It's not tangent to the universe. It is part of God's story. And that's what makes it significant. That's what makes it so important. For every Elijah, there was also those 7,000 unnamed prophets, sons of the prophets with him. You know, For every Mary of Bethany, there is all the many women who followed Jesus. For every Paul, there were hundreds of house churches started all over, all over the Middle East of ordinary barmaids, chambermaids, and barbers. Ordinary people who continue the story. That's, that's one of the reasons why I, I, um, I love Dallas Willard. Uh, he kind of became sort of a celebrity um, later on in his life before he died. And Sue and I had a chance to meet him. And he is a very, he has great truth, great thoughts. He wrote some of the best things I've ever read. And we got to meet him and talk with him. And he's the real deal. You would see him during the breaks at a table with a woman crying. You would see him over coffee. You'd see him talking to me and Sue. And he was just this ordinary guy who talked, who always talked about being part of God's story. And he said one of his students asked him one time, why do you follow Jesus? And he says, well, who do you have in mind? Who else do you have in mind? And he said one student says, well, yourself. You, you be true to yourself. And Dallas Willard says, I'm part of the problem. Why would I follow myself? I follow him. And I think that's what Mark is doing. He is inviting us, almost insisting, that we enter into the center of this story so that we don't become the center of the story. We are part of a greater narrative. And we are just continuing what Mark left off. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Mark. And I am uh, myself, just as I work through it, I'm so humbled um, by what he is telling us and what he's showing us. And Father, I ask that you take your word and you show us 
where we fit in, where we fit into your story, so that our lives aren't on the periphery, that aren't tangential, but they're part of the center with you. And in Jesus' name, amen.